everyone. My name is Will, one of the pastors here at New Life Press, and uh, it's a joy to be with you all here worshiping together. Just want to welcome also those of us worshiping from uh, home through live stream. Pray that the Lord will bless you here today as well. Uh, we're about to turn the corner towards the end of our study on the book of Nehemiah, and uh, today I'm going to read just a, a handful of verses from Nehemiah 12, but I'm going to attempt to preach on the, the rest of the chapter of Nehemiah 12. And so if you're able, I want to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Uh, the Scripture reading will come to us in Nehemiah chapter 12, verses 27 to 30. It's essentially the introduction to this section of chapter 12, where if you've ever read this chapter, it describes a dedication service of a new building and a new wall, and they're dedicating it. So there's this celebratory and jubilant service of worshiping God. And so the introduction starts in verse 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites and all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netaphathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. And this is God's word. Take your seats, please. A dedication service. Uh, many of us have probably seen on TV or in the movies or even in the building that we're worshiping here at 1430 East Orange Thorpe. We moved into this building officially in 2011 towards the, the fourth quarter of the year. And we're all familiar with the, a dedication ceremony. There's a red ribbon. You cut it. There's a speech giving out thanks to all the people that made this possible. You sort of describe the purpose of this building, the dedication, and the use of this building. So we all have a sense of what a dedication is. Important people come up and break, a, break open a bottle of champagne. You shake hands, and you celebrate a momentous occasion in whatever situation you find yourselves in with respect to this building that you celebrate in. One of the things that I've been trying to say throughout our study in Nehemiah is that as much as it is important to rebuild the walls of the temple, that is important, but rebuilding the people of God is more important. And that's really the thrust and the core of what the book of Nehemiah is, the people coming back to God to be restored and to rebuild in the gospel of Jesus. And what we're noticing here as we look at the past few weeks of the chapters 9 through 11 is that one of the baseline identities of the people of God is that they're a worshiping community. They're worshipers. Now, the word worship in the English language comes from Old English, the word worth-ship, which captures the heart of what worship is. You dedicate your voices, your time, your resources to what you think is worthy. And you worship what you think is essentially worthy. What we deem as worthy, what we end up thinking is valuable to us. So whatever is worthy to us, we worship or worship. And that's what we see in this passage. God's purpose, his plan, God himself, he's so worthy. We see that in Revelations and the book of Psalm. You are worthy, you are worthy. So Isaiah 6 really captures that idea. And whatever we worship, we tend to sort of take on that same culture and sort of reflect what we hold in our hearts. That's why the N.T. scholar, N.T. Wright, has once said this. When human beings give their heartfelt allegiance to and worship that which is not God, they progressively cease to reflect the image of God. One of the primary laws of human life is that you become like what you worship. 
And you can understand that this is one way to understand uh, the perspective of idolatry. If you find money to be the worthiest of your efforts, then you'll be all about the bottom line and your purchasing power and economic activity. If you find beauty to be the worthiest attribute in this world, you're going to dedicate all your time to making yourself look as beautiful as you could be. Academics and intellect, your family, whatever it is, even good things, if you consider that to be more worthy than God, you'll sort of lose the image of God and begin to look like the things that you pursue. And so that's why this passage is so profound and so important for us, because what we have in this dedication service are basically three lessons about worship so that we could become the people that we're created to be, a worshiping community of God. And the three things that we can learn about worship are this. One, purification. Secondly, celebration. Thirdly, dedication. Those are the three things that we'll see, that in order to worship God, the people had to be purified. When they're in the presence of God, they celebrate who he is. And then lastly, when they walk away from God, they realize they're going to dedicate their lives to him. So purification, celebration, and then dedication. So let's look at this briefly. First, to consider how we worship God and all that is worthy for us, then we need to understand that what is bound up in this service is the idea of being clean, being purified. They spent and devoted a lot of time in rituals towards purification. Read with me verse 30. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the walls. So they purified themselves and the building itself. Then you roll down all the way to the bottom of the chapter, verse 45, and they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and gatekeepers according to the command of David and his son Solomon. So from verse 30 to verse 45, the beginning and end of this passage, the beginning and end of service, they were cared a lot about being clean being holy, being forgiven. And that's because, as one commentator said, when it comes to worship, hearts are more important than voices. And what he means by that is that not all of you could carry a tune. Not all of you are meant to be a worship leader or a singer for worship. And you are still called to sing and delight in God. But what's far more important is going to be a pure heart, a forgiven heart, a heart that longs to be with Jesus, a heart that reflects the grace and the love and the mercy of God because when it comes to worship, hearts are far more important than voices, even though you need both. The reason, friends, is because to worship a holy God in a holy place, you need a holy people from inside out. And that's why in Psalm 51, a famous passage in the Bible, the psalmist declares that inward purity and the necessity of a clean heart is vital to worshiping and having a relationship with God. So in 51.10, it says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Because external rituals are important, but they're absolutely meaningless unless there's an internal confession of sin. So you could go through the motions, you could go through all the rituals of what it looks like to worship God, but if it doesn't come from a pure heart, there's something inauthentic about that. And you see that throughout the Bible with respect to worship, both in the Old Testament and New. Isaiah exposed the sin of worshipers who had expensive sacrifices, gave their best possessions, their best offerings, and they lifted their arms in prayer, and they looked really good externally. But Isaiah rebukes them because he saw their hearts, and they had stained hands that were corrupt and murderous, and lips that were hypocritical and gossipy, because God looked for clean hearts and upright lives. 
Even the New Testament, Matthew chapter 23, 23 to 28, Jesus looked for more than ceremonial purity. He's talking to the Pharisees, the religious elite. And he says that you guys are really religious, but you care more about appearances and looking religious and looking holy and pretending that you are worshiping God. Well, all the while, you're all messed up inside. And he uses a simple everyday analogy to say this. They wash the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of self-indulgence and greed. And it tells us that God cares more about the hearts than the words on their lips. And he cares about a spiritual cleansing. And it's a reminder for us today, friends, when you look at this passage, purification in verse 30, purification in verse 45, they had all these rituals were a little bit different than what we do here today. And that rituals and singing and symbols and all that is really important. But what God really cares about in worship is to know that you could always come to Jesus to be purified and to be forgiven. Because all the sacrifices that you see in the Old Testament and probably what they performed here in chapter 12 only pointed to the once and for all sacrifice according to Hebrews that you no longer need to sacrifice animals, but we have Jesus as the complete sacrifice. And by faith, we are cleansed because of the person and work of Christ for us. This cleansing is a reminder that our hearts, apart from Jesus, are unfit for worship, to declare that God is worthy. We need clean hands and pure hearts. And for today, that comes through the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. The only way we come to worship God in his presence is through our union with Jesus and by the cleansing blood that washes away our sin. And that's the application that we have here today, friends, to come here with pure hearts. You see, it's a little bit more challenging if you apply this before we get to our second point. Because some of you may be really good at worshiping externally, and I'm not here to judge your heart. And I love the fact when I talk to the praise team and they look out and they love seeing people actually sing, which we'll get to in our second point. And some people look like they're really worshiping. You know, you raise your hands and you, you, know, you have a very pensive look and you're like, you're worshiping God. But then in your heart, you know, there's all kinds of hypocrisy and uh, sin and the messiness that you can't lay before the Lord. You know, there's a hypocrisy there that works out in so many different ways that you have the face and you're worshiping God and you look good. And you squint your eyes, but then you go back and you live a life that Jesus makes no difference in your life. Now, you can imagine in this way. You go to the White House and you have a meeting with President Biden and you go into his Oval Office and you say, Biden, President, you're the most wonderful president in the history of our nation. I love all your policies. I love what you've done. And this is fantastic and wonderful. And then you walk out of his office, and then you see there's a self-portrait of President Biden, a painting of himself on the hallway. And you go over to that painting, and you take it off the wall, and you begin to throw it on the ground. You spit on it. You tear it up. You ravage that painting. You stomp on it. And then somebody who's watching all of this, what do you think they're going to think? They're going to be confused. They're going to be, you're a hypocrite. You praise Biden to his face, and then you turn it around, and you kill the very image of Biden in the painting in the hallway. And sometimes I think that's how we are here today when we think about purification. You praise God and say, you are worthy and you're holy, but your life immediately shows something different. Or we praise God with our lips when we congregate here in worship, and the next moment as we walk out through that door, we begin to gossip against other people in the church who are also made in the image of God. And it's utterly hypocritical. And the application for us is to say that at the end of the day, hearts are more important than voices, even though you really need both. And to have a clean heart and an upright life, and whenever we sin, because we do that every day, 
We humbly come before God, we receive his forgiveness, and we try to grow in the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ. Because God cares about a worship that's inside out, not as much about being outside in. And that's the first aspect, purification. To know that you have upright lives and a clean heart in the person of Jesus Christ for you. But this leads us to our second point. Once you're able to enter into the presence of God and you have purification, the second thing that you want to understand is that this worship service, this worship service was joyful, it was jubilant, it was emotional, and it was a a celebration. There was a lot of singing in this worship service. So Dr. Roderick Gorney, a UCLA professor of psychiatry, I'm not sure if he's still there, but he did a study once on just humanity's natural posture to want to sing, and he said this, the impulse to sing might be more primitive than the impulse to speak. So he's basically saying, just by being human, your natural tendency is to sing more than it is to speak. And you know what that means? It means that your natural posture is to be a worshiper, not just a communicator. The impulse to sing might be more primitive than the impulse to sing. And he goes on and says something to the fact that when we sing, it's because we find something so wonderful and beautiful and joyful that it wells up with inside of us that we can't help but be able to sing. And he's saying that could be more fundamental to who you are as a person, worship, singing, than it is simply to talk. And I think he's absolutely right because as Paul Tripp says, worship is not an activity, it's an identity, it's what we do. We either worship God or we worship other things. And that's what the Bible calls sin and idolatry. Well, look at this passage. They have an impulse to sing. There are two choirs that Nehemiah describes, two groups of people, if you can imagine this in your head. They have cymbals, they have instruments, they have lyres, they're singing. And there's two groups. There's one in verses 31 and 37, led by Ezra, that goes towards the south around the temple or city of Jerusalem. And then you have a second group in 38 to 39, Nehemiah was part of that group, and they're going toward the northern section. So you have two groups that are just parading around, declaring the goodness and the joy and the worthiness of who God is for them. It's a wonderful worship dedication service. And the goal and the end of these two groups ends in verse 40, which is going to be the temple and the house of God. See, friends, what's interesting is this. There's a lesson in life here. Two worship groups begins with praise, ends in the house of God. It tells us that as Christians, our life begins and ends with praise. That's what we'll be doing when we go back to heaven anyways. That the essence of life is probably caught in the first question of our catechism, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The choirs began singing in the beginning of the service. The goal of the service is to get into the presence of God to sing and worship him more. Life begins and ends with praising and worshiping God. The choirs, not the kingly people and officials, led the way. The choirs did this. In other words, the praise leaders led this. It was all about praise. It was all about celebration. Life begins and ends with praise. It was a well-planned worship service. This wasn't an extemporaneous service. They probably planned. I'm guessing, and I, I like to think, even though it's not directly in the verses, it's an implication that commentators will note, but they probably practiced this. You can't have all these instruments and all these different people come together singing the same lyrics. They had to practice this procession. It was a well-planned celebration of who God is and what God has done for them. They had to gather the Levites from all the places. They had to practice the songs that they were singing. 
There is music, there is joy, and there is thanksgiving. One commentator, I think it was Derek Kidner, he said that worship for Christians was never meant to be boring or drab or dreary. Now, I get what he's saying, and I agree with him, and we all know that sometimes in Christian worship, there are times for lament, times of mourning, times where we sing the songs of Psalms, and we're like, we worship you, God, but we're really hurting right now. And there's times for that. There's moments of that. You know, not everything is fun and joyful. That's why some people that think worship can only be victorious and celebratory and joyful and only is like that, a lot of people say that's more of a reflection of a westernized understanding of Christianity that's triumphalistic. But sometimes on this side of glory, when people are hurting, we worship God through lament because we, we mourn and we lament the brokenness and the heartache and the injustice of this world. But nevertheless, there's a place for sadness and lament. Christians have in the gospel of Jesus more reason to celebrate and to be joyful than anyone else in this world. The scholar Raymond Brown said this very simply, Christianity is the happiest religion in the world because of all who God is and what he's done for us in Christ. And celebrating and rejoicing and being happy about this religion called Christianity, what the Israelites were doing in Nehemiah 12, they're celebrating, they have two groups, they're worshiping, they're leading and ending with praise, and they're probably celebrating who God is and his faithfulness. Even if you can imagine in the story of Nehemiah, you can see what they could thank him for. They're worshiping and celebrating God. They're celebrating that Hanani met Nehemiah at Susa. They're celebrating that Nehemiah's heart broke and was compelled to action. They're celebrating that the Persian king let Nehemiah go as the cupbearer to Jerusalem, gave him the materials, gave him the past. They're celebrating the unity of the people and the sacrifice and the working of all the people to build this wall, celebrating the wisdom and protection of God from the enemies and the political manipulation of his enemies. They're celebrating God's plan, his purpose, celebrating his faithfulness, working with their lives. And you know what's so funny? They celebrate so much, but they didn't even see the full glory of what Jesus has done, the fulfillment of the temple that Jesus would come and tabernacle among his people and give his presence fully by his spirit, something that we have today. In some sense, friends, when you fast forward to modern day, we have even more reason to celebrate and be joyful than the Israelites did. They got the preview of what that temple just gave them a glimpse of. We have the full picture because the Bible is completed and we're on the other side of Jesus' resurrection seeing God's fulfillment and promise that's only given in a glimpse of this temple to say my presence will be here and you can have sacrifices and forgiveness. But we get that fully on this side of the resurrection because we see how it's all been fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. We have every reason to celebrate God's plan for your life and also in the life of the church. And because of this, friends, when you look at these verses, there's a couple of things that we see about celebration. There's a lot of emotion, and there's a lot of singing. There's a lot of joy. There's an intensity here. So let's look at this really quickly. You see joy everywhere. Just a couple examples. In verse 27, it says this. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites and all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate. The dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, it was singing, with cymbals and harp and lyre. There's gladness, there's singing, there's a dedication, there's a lot of joy. And then in verse 43, it says, They offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced 
For God had made them rejoice with a great joy. You know, it's repetitive intentionally. They rejoiced and they rejoiced again with a great joy. And that word there, great, comes from our English. If you look at a translation of it, mega. In other words, it's saying God made them rejoice with mega joy. It's intense. The women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away, even evangelistically. We worship God, but we glance to the pagan nations because we rejoice. That's how it should be. They celebrated with an intensity. And you can see this intensity, even grammatically, in the words that Nehemiah uses. You can see the intensity of celebration, what we call the superlatives. And in particular, the superlative of the very word great. Now, I don't know what you think about that word great. I think we like it. I think in our day and age, because we're so sensational and so uh, celebratory in our culture, uh, you know, so self-indulgent as a culture in Western individualistic America, that great is okay, but it doesn't really capture what many of us probably today like. We like words like, that was absolutely amazing. That was the world's greatest. You know, if you play in your sports team or you write a paper or even for a sermon and you want to hear something that's mind-blowing and life-changing because that's sort of how our culture is. But when somebody says, that was great, it's like, okay, that was nice, but it really wasn't as impact, making an impact as we want it to be. Superlatives. That may be our culture with the word great, but in the Bible, great was a very, very powerful word. A very powerful word. Now, Muhammad Ali once says, I am the greatest. And he's had it captured sort of the essence of what the Bible is trying to say. The disciples argued, who will be the greatest in the kingdom of God in Mark chapter 10? And then Jesus says, whoever serves and the last shall be first and first shall be last. But whoever serves is going to be the greatest. This is why in Matthew 28, we have the great commission. That's why if you grow up in the church, you know the great commandment to love God and the second greatest commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. In Luke chapter 9, 43, Jesus talks about what it means to be great. In Psalm 145, just one example, it says, Great is the Lord who is greatly to be praised. In fact, if you look at a word count, at least in the ESV, the word great is in the Bible over a thousand times. And in the prayer book of the Bible, the praise book, which is the book of Psalms, the word great is there over 80 times. See, the word great captures something very distinct. It's multifaceted. It's rich. It's not like how our culture does this, where you see nice weather. It's like, this is great weather. Great is a dense, rich, wonderful word that God uses to describe himself and what he's done to save his people. It's great. It means that God is one of a kind. When it says in Psalm 145, greatest Lord, you said, you are one of a kind. You're unique. You're number one. You usurp everything else in this world. You are so wonderful that words cannot capture how deep and wonderful and loving that you are. You're great. And that's why when you look at this celebration and the superlatives that Nehemiah uses to describe the intensity of their joy, he chooses the word great. Verse 31, they were great choirs. Verse 43, God made them rejoice with great joy. Not just joy, but great joy, mega joy. Verse 43, they made not just regular sacrifices, but there's something big here. They made great sacrifices because we have a great God. And because of this, that led them to sing in this celebration. They sang in verse 27, 
It's saying in verse 42, and you can imagine that they're going around parading from the southern and the northern side, and they're celebrating with their cymbals and their harps, and they're singing. Now, you're probably wondering, what sort of praise songs did they sing? I think they probably sang the psalm book, because that's what Old Testament people did. One way to know that is that in verse 46, it says this, For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So it's probably hearkening back to David and Asaph, and so they're looking at the book of Psalms. We're not sure what Psalms they're singing, but we could probably make a guess looking at the history of this particular chapter. I like to imagine that maybe they're singing Psalm chapter 100, verses 1 to 2. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Or maybe they're singing Psalm chapter 48, verses 12 to 14. Walk about Zion. Go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Or maybe they're singing Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman says, awake, stays awake in vain. We're not sure, but maybe they're singing something to that effect about who God is and what he's done for them. C.S. Lewis has said this about the book of Psalms. The most valuable thing the Psalms do for me is to express the same delight in God which made David dance. And you know what's interesting? The Psalms do that. They capture every emotion of the human existence. But the point is, is that it was God and his character and his promises and his plan, and it made them sing with mega joy. The primary impulse to sing is to express something welling up inside of you that's so deep that the only way that you could express your worship and praise to God is through song. One person explained it this way. Music is basically poetry that touches the heart. And when it touches your heart, God's revelation, who he is, that he's loving, he's kind, but he's omnipotent and powerful and just, and he sent his son Jesus to die for you, and he's been faithful in every detail of your life, is music that touches poetry that touches your heart so that you begin to sing. So the, the simple question is this, friends. When we gather here to worship, do you see who God is in clarity and glory as, and glory as revealed to us in the Bible? Does it move your heart? Does it want you to sing with mega joy? There's songs of lament for sure, but we're also on this side of glory where we're victorious because of the once-for-all work of Jesus. Are you able to sing in response to this? Are you able to praise God? Are you excited to worship him in response to God wanting to meet with you? Have you ever met a famous person and you're so excited and that you can't hold still, whether it's a concert or somebody you saw walking down the streets of L.A.? Now, one of the most famous people that I met, which may be not that famous, was a handful of years ago. We, we had a session retreat. It was somewhere at an Airbnb around Dana Point. And one morning, we woke up, and we wanted to go get breakfast at this place. And all of a sudden, one of the elders says over there, Pastor Will, Pastor Will, there's Magic Johnson. And I was like, oh, I looked over, and all these people were talking to him, getting his autograph. And I was like, we got to meet. This is a once-in-a-lifetime chance. We got to meet Magic Johnson. Showtime. We got to get his signature. But I was like, how do we do this? And I look over, and he's sitting down. And I guess he had a takeout order. And I was like, do we just go up to him? I feel nervous. I don't know if I could share it. I don't know if I could go up to him. It's like, maybe I'll just buy his breakfast, and I'll just talk to the waiter, and whatever he's waiting for, I'm going to buy it, assuming he's going to come over and thank me, and then I can meet him. But I thought, this is Magic Johnson. It may be thousands of dollars in his breakfast, so I'm not going to buy the breakfast. So then we go over. He starts walking back to his car. One of the other elders says, let's just follow him. 
So we just followed him over there, and he was going to his black Escalade, and we interrupted. And honestly, I don't remember what I said. I don't know if I said, excuse me, magic, or maybe I was a good Asian guy. I said, Mr. Johnson, excuse me, can I please meet you? Can I get your picture? We're so happy you're doing a wonderful job with the Dodgers. I don't even know anything about baseball. just trying to say something to make him feel good. It was wonderful. We all took pictures. And we're so happy. One white guy walked by, and he just saw him. He's like, can you take a picture for me? Because we felt like we were in the presence of greatness. There were only two elders in the session at that time that didn't really care to take a picture. One guy was like, I only like San Francisco Bay Area teams. Another guy was like, I don't like sports, but if it were Bill Gates, then I would definitely take a picture. You know why? Because for whatever reason, on a human level, Unless you find the person glorious, um, rich, great, you'll never worship and be joyful about it. And so sometimes I wonder, being in the church and growing up in the church, you get so inundated with the same thing every week that there's something lethargic or melancholy about God. And you come here together, and it's not anything that you want to sing with mega joy. But we pray for the Spirit to touch your hearts and say, maybe you don't sing because you don't know who God is, or you need to be reminded of what he's done for you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because we're in the presence of greatness. And last but not least, lessons we learn about worship, there's purification, there's celebration, and last and quickly, there's dedication. What exactly is dedication? We hear things like, I dedicate this song. You read a book and the, the cover or the inside first page, I dedicate this to my one and only. It means if you look up the word dedication in the Bible, to set aside, uh, even in a religious context, for a purpose and a use. I like what Matthew Henry says about dedication. They hereby devoted the city in a peculiar manner to God and to his honor and took possession of it for him and in his name. This building, they worked, they sacrificed, but at the end of the day, they said, this is for God, for his use and his purpose. They dedicate this. Similar to consecration. Basically, dedication is that you use something in the way that it was designed to use for the purpose of its use. So when you take a pair of glasses and you wear them to see clearly, you're dedicating those glasses for eyesight. If you take a pencil, you begin to write a letter, you're dedicating that pencil for the design and its use of intention to write letters and sentences and punctuation. You're dedicating it in the way that it's supposed to be used. In the same way, we dedicate, they dedicated this building to worship God in honor of God who owns this. That's what dedication is. And we see that at the conclusion of this service in verse 44. They dedicated themselves. It says this, On that day men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes, to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. Now here is talking about their possessions, their resources, their storerooms, their contributions, their giving, their agriculture, their first fruits, their tithing. And so they're going to do this as a reflection of worship every day of their lives. They're dedicating their lives. But I want to try to stretch this application a bit. Are you dedicated to God this morning? 
And I'm not just talking about tithes and offering, because that's important. But I'm talking about dedicating your life. Because one of the fears or concerns I have, even for myself, is that for people like New Life Press, where for the most part we're educated, middle, upper middle class, you know, it still means that generosity from the heart could be reflected in generosity in dollars. But even then, my fear of dedication is that our dedication in the Christian life can stop with our bank accounts. I think it's important to remember that we dedicate not just our money, but our time and our gifts and our forgiveness. God lays claim to all of us. He owns us. It seems that in the moment of giving our finances, perhaps in our heart and our mind, we're recognizing a moment just to remember. In the moment that in our worship service, we give our tithes and offerings, which is really great and wonderful in our act of worship in itself, it could be just one small reminder to say, I give you this tithe and offering, but God, you have all of me. God, you have all of me. You have my family, my intellect, my time, my resources. Because for some people, it's easy to give money, but you don't give anything else to the church and dedicate it to God. Be like, oh, my kids are mine. I'm going to raise them the way I want to do this. Or for children, if you're in school, you're saying, okay, I'll go to church, but when I'm at school with my friends, that's going to be my time. I'm going to talk and act a little bit differently. Social media, I'm going to be a little bit different. When it comes to your reputation, I'm going to be a little bit different. The challenge here for all of us is basic Christian discipleship. How can you dedicate everything to God? And I get it. It's not that easy. Like, how do you dedicate work when you're an accountant? It doesn't mean that if you dedicate work, you just stop everything and go to seminary, become a missionary, Bible teacher. That's not the way it works. If you're an accountant, if you're a teacher, if you're an engineer, if you're anything that God calls you to do, there's a way that you could do the work to dedicate it to him in a way that reflects his glory. But part of the challenge is to figure out in what area am I holding back so that I'm not dedicating it to him. Now, a simple Overly simplistic analogy is that I remember once I had to use the bathroom and driving on the highway, I had to stop by the gas station. I went in to buy a, couple, a, a bottle of water so I could use her bathroom, and then I go around over to the bathroom, and it says, under repair. And then I go over to the McDonald's restaurant that's across the street, desperately needing to use the bathroom, and I go over to the men's bathroom, and it says, keep out. <laughs> and now I was, in a, I was in a little bit of a bind, so that I Google where the next Rest area is when I race over in there, and finally there is a, a bathroom that I could use. But I wonder that if you take that analogy into your life, saying, God, I'm going to give you this room and this room and this room and this area, but there is this one room, God, keep out. And for some of us, it could be our work. Some of us, it could be your money. Some of you could be your family. Some of you, it's the way you talk and your words. I'll do everything, but I'm not going to change the way that I talk because I want to keep it real. I'm going to offend people. I'm just going to say what I want to say. Some of you, it's your physical body. Maybe all of us, it's our thoughts, that what we think is not really holy to set our minds upon things above. But there's one area in this list of our lives because of this thing called sin that we say, keep out. But verse 44 is implying in this everyday overseeing of storerooms and contributions and first fruits that God owns everything. So whenever you give your small financial and generous, glorious, and active worship financial tithe and offering, may it be a reminder to say, God is small, but this is just a reminder that you have all of me. You have all of me. 
because he has given me all of you in your son, Jesus Christ, who has saved me and died for me. And the full body and dwelling of God dwells bodily in Jesus. He's given to us. And he raised again from the dead and went up into heaven and poured out his spirit in Pentecost and that Jesus' spirit dwells fully in us by faith in Jesus. We have all of God given to us in all of this kingdom, all of the blessings that we have in the spiritual realm according to Ephesians 1. He's given us everything that we have. And now it's our challenge to figure out in this world how do we dedicate every part of our lives to him. Friends, let's pray. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I just thank you for this time. Lord, that we dedicate to you in this worship. We thank you that by our corporate confession and declaration of pardon and the grace and forgiveness of Jesus, you have purified us in our hearts, that we receive forgiveness and cleansing. We thank you that we can celebrate the goodness and the grace of what you have done for us by sending your son to die for us and that you're presence is so powerful to us and that you are mega, that you are great. And Lord, I pray that we continue to dedicate our lives and to say that there's no area of our lives where we put up a sign in our sin to say, keep out. And we pray that we could be bold and humble enough to lay down before the cross all that we are and so that you could take hold of all of us because you bought us with the price of your son. Thank you so much, God. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.